Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So uh, Rabbi Bloom was a young go-getter rabbi, just newly ordained from rabbinical school, and he got a uh, job as an assistant rabbi uh, at a uh, venerated large pulpit. Uh, the senior rabbi was a gentleman named Rabbi Gold. Rabbi Gold was uh, very esteemed, uh, very beloved by his community, very revered in his uh, skills and abilities, but also had something of a sense of humor. So as Rabbi Bloom started his work, he said to Rabbi Gold, remember that I told you during my interview that I got many awards when I was in seminary for my ability to give sermons. In fact, I venture to bet with you that I could give a sermon on any topic or on any verse that's put in front of me. And so Rabbi Gold sat with this for a while and then one week said to Rabbi Bloom, you know, next week I would like you to give the sermon in my place, but don't prepare anything. Instead, I'm going to leave you a sealed envelope on the pulpit with one word in it, one topic, and you on the spot will have to come up with a verse connected to that topic and a sermon on the topic. So Rabbi Bloom, being a go-getter, said, okay, I'll accept. He got very excited about it. And then the week came. The moment came in the service. He went to his pulpit and took the envelope and opened it up and saw the word constipation. And he thought for a moment and started speaking. And he said, and Moses took two tablets and came off down the mountain. (laughs) Why I love that joke is that as many of you know, it's possible, it's conceivable to take a verse in the Torah and to spin it and interpret it in any number of different ways. And to take a concept or to take a theme or a topic and to take a biblical verse and kind of twist it and shape it in order to fit that topic. We know it's possible. We know it's true. And we've seen it done many times in our lives, more than likely, sometimes in ways that we feel good about and sometimes in ways that make us uncomfortable. So I recognize that there are many different ways of interpreting passages from Torah. And I'll give you a really incredible, for example, one that I've shared probably with many of you a few times. In our Torah portion this week, 
We have uh, the law that's known in the parlance as lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Shane tachat shane, ayin tachat ayin, regel tachat regel, yad tachat yad. Uh, a tooth for a tooth, a foot for a foot, a hand for a hand, an eye for an eye. That's how biblical justice is supposed to be carried out. Now, reading that verse, it seems perfectly clear what the law is supposed to be. But it turns out that that's not how Jewish law ends up understanding and applying that seemingly very clear and very simple verse. The rabbis say that it couldn't possibly be true, it couldn't possibly be just for the Torah to say that if you cut off somebody's hand, your hand should be cut off. Because law is meant to cover a wide range of possibilities, and law is meant to recover a wide range of cases and a wide range of people, and it has to be applied fairly and uniformly across everybody. So if I cut off somebody's hand, then maybe it would be fair to cut off my hand in return. But let's say I only had one hand, and I cut off the hand of a two-handed person. That person then has one hand. But if in retaliation for it, the court cuts off my other hand, then I have no hands. How would that be fair, the rabbis ask? So instead, the rabbis say this verse must have referred to the value of a hand, the value of a foot, the value of a tooth, the value of an eye, so that if I were to cut off somebody's hand, They would then evaluate my worth on, say, the slave market, which, as we learned from our Torah portion, existed in uh, in ancient times. They would take my value and say, what would my value be now? And what would be my value if I only had one hand? And whatever the difference is, that would be the compensation I would have to give to the poor person that now only has one hand. That would be the monetary compensation. So this happens all the time in the Jewish tradition. We have verses that are seemingly explicit about what they mean, seemingly clear, and the rabbinic tradition and the Jewish legal tradition, dating back centuries if not millennia, interprets it to mean something that seems almost diametrically opposed to what it's saying in the first place. Or they'll take a a verse or a passage that is somewhat opaque, all the more so, and try to concretize it or understand it in a different way or unique way or unusual way. That's embedded in the core of our tradition. We have an interpretive tradition that sometimes takes the Torah contextually or literally and sometimes doesn't. The determining factor is often what we would maybe call extra-legal concerns, how to create a system of fairness and of goodness, and as our Torah portion says today, on Kodesh li, you shall be holy people to me. And so the rabbinic tradition looks at biblical verses and say, okay, do I look at this verse and, I, and when I see it, in how it's literally understood, would that application of that law create holy people and a holy society, or would it not? And if not, then we need to reinterpret it or re-understand it in a different way. This happens all the time. This isn't a modern phenomenon that happens. But I was thinking about this not necessarily because of the possibility of 
uh, interpreting within the tradition, although that's an interesting topic. I was thinking about it in a slightly different vein because I think that there are things within our tradition that as broad general principles are not at all subject to interpretation or debate. So for example, our Torah portion this week, Parashat Mishpatim, is one of the largest coherent law codes in the Bible. There's another one in Leviticus, another one in Deuteronomy. And these law codes don't deal primarily with what most of us would term religious law, right? So what kind of food is kosher? Even though, of course, our Torah portion does have lo tevashel gedi bechelavimo as one of the laws. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. One of the laws. It's not primarily about how to observe the holidays properly, although the observance of the holidays does get a few passages in this week's Torah portion. It's not necessarily about whether to say Ashrei before or after the uh, blessing of the new month. That's actually not mentioned at all in this week's Torah portion. Or uh, which version of the Kaddish to use, or, uh, or, or uh, how much a Pesuke de Zimra to include in services and not include in services. The things that we normally turn quote-unquote religious concerns, that is not the primary concern of a Torah portion like ours this morning. The primary concern of a Torah portion like ours this morning is the construction of a just society the construction of a body politic, a functional body politic that supports and sustains and cooperates with each other. In other words, while it's possible to interpret and understand and debate the meaning of any given passage in our Torah portion or in the entire Torah or within the entire tradition, what is not possible, in my view, is to debate whether or not the Torah has political concerns. The Torah, and in particular our Torah portion, is inherently political. The construction of a body politic is inherently political. How to create a just society is inherently political. How to distribute wealth, which our Torah portion covers, is inherently political. How to deal with agricultural policy is inherently political. How to create systems of justice and laws of punishment and retribution is a political conversation. How to deal with damages between people is a political issue. Our Torah portion and much of the Torah, though of course not all of it, is political in that sense. It's meant to facilitate a conversation and create a structure around which a society can both function and flourish according to the overarching principles that the Torah offers itself, among which, and maybe even primarily, is the verse I just mentioned, on Kodesh Tiyunli, you shall be holy people to me. And so the Torah portion doesn't just leave it as that general idea, be holy. We all get that again in Leviticus, by the way, uh, in another series of, of laws governing uh, both what we would call normally religious issues, but also civil and 
jurisprudential and political issues, it starts with the phrase, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. Instead, it gives practical considerations for how to build a society that facilitates becoming holy, both on a personal level and on a social level. Now, that doesn't mean that the Torah is inherently liberal or conservative. It doesn't mean that the Torah inherently aligns with Republicans or Democrats. That, I think, is a given, in large part, because those things didn't exist in the time of the Torah. But it also doesn't mean that from time to time the Torah won't offer a law or a value or a, a, an ethical direction that may align with a liberal, in our modern context, point of view, or a conservative, in our modern context, point of view, or a Republican idea, or a Democratic idea. It won't inherently, it wasn't written with that notion in mind, but it doesn't mean that it can't happen. And when it does happen, it is, I think, a dereliction of our responsibilities as Jews to not look at it and take it seriously, and to hold it up as a challenge to our own predisposition and ideals. So if we tend to be liberal people, and we encounter a law in the Torah uh, that is uh, somewhat conservative in its orientation, and there are those laws, then we ought not say to ourselves, oh, well, that law is not really dealing with politics. Or to say, I'm going to ignore that law. Rather, we have it in our tradition in order to be challenged by it and in order to wrestle with it. And the same is true, I think, on the other side of the aisle as well, that if one generally has a conservative predisposition and there is a passage in the Torah and there are these passages too that seem to align with a more liberal social policy or economic policy, that the proper response in my view is not to say, oh, well, that's not really dealing with the construction of, uh, of civil society and body politic, that's actually, we're going to interpret that to refer to sort of personal piety, or uh, we're going to ignore it altogether because it challenges our predispositions. No. Responsible Jews, I think, ought to look at that text and be challenged by it and wrestle with it and say, maybe my predisposition is not in line with what my tradition, or even, if you will, God is asking of me. So I get from time to time people, especially in, in recent months, people coming to me and saying, uh, Rabbi, I really would prefer that the synagogue be a politics-free zone. I would really rather the synagogue and the rabbi not discuss political issues from the pulpit. Now, normally what people mean by that is, I wish the synagogue wouldn't discuss politics that disagree with my own predispositions. Sometimes it doesn't mean that. Sometimes people don't want to touch on those contentious and hot-button issues. We want to have a wide tent. We want people to feel at home and comfortable in a congregation. I get that. Believe me. I don't want people to feel alienated. But on the other hand, our tradition does set 
expectations for how people should live, how society should be structured. And those expectations don't always align with what we otherwise might have wanted to do or how we otherwise might be viewing the world. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be bringing them into the synagogue. It's precisely why we should be bringing them into the synagogue. Because the Torah wasn't written in order to make each of us feel comfortable. In large part, the Torah was written in order to challenge us to become holy people and to build a holy community. And that means sometimes doing things that we're not already naturally predisposed to believe or to do. I get sometimes letters saying, Judaism does not equal liberalism. And I agree with that. But what the second statement should be, so show me how the Torah as you understand it comports with conservatism. And that almost is never the second part of that letter. And I get it from the other side too. There are plenty of organizations that do make the inherent argument that Judaism equals liberalism or that Judaism doesn't equal conservatism, that it's antithetical to those ideals without ever actually taking the time to prove that point or disprove the opposite point that conservative ideals are antithetical to Jewish ones. It's certainly not true. So in my view, when someone says we shouldn't talk politics in synagogue, we shouldn't have political issues under consideration, under discussion, under debate, my, art, my answer to that is, then how do you read the Torah? How do you understand the Torah? What do you do with a Torah portion like ours that clearly has political and civil issues at its core, social issues at its core, issues of interpersonal relationships and communal relationships at its core. It's not only about personal piety, my own relationship with God, although it is about that too. But it's also about how we function together and how we do it justly and how we do it in a holy way. That's the essence of Torah. There's a famous passage in, uh, toward the end of our Torah portion this week that says, uh, the Jewish people, after getting this set of laws from Moses, they say, that everything God says, we will do, and then we will learn. There's a great midrash around that line that some of you may be familiar with. Midrash goes like this, that before God gave the Torah to the Jewish people, God went to each and every nation that existed at the time and asked them first, will you accept the Torah? And each and every nation, for various reasons, said no. He went to the Moabites and said, will you accept the Torah? And the Moabites said, Maybe what's in it? And God said, honor thy father and mother. And the Moabites said, well, our society is actually based on the next generation superseding the previous generation, and so we can't abide by a law that says honor thy father and mother. No, thank you. And so God went to the Midianites, and God said, will you accept the Torah? And the Midianites said, what's in it? And God says, Thou shalt not murder. And the Midianites say, 
Our whole economy is based on murder, on warfare. We can't abide by the Torah, no thank you. And so God went to the Canaanites and said, will you accept the Torah? And the Canaanites said, what's in it? And God said, thou shalt not worship idols. And the Canaanites said, that's our whole way of life. Our whole way of being is worshiping idols. We can't live, we can't accept a covenant, a law that says, thou shalt not make graven images. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. We can't abide by that law. In other words, each and every one of those nations is presented with the Torah as it is. And they say, because of our predispositions, because of the way we already construct our society, the way we already think about the world, the way we already want to behave and are accustomed to behaving, on those grounds we won't accept the Torah. And the Jewish response is the one that's celebrated. We will do it. We will make a commitment to it and then we'll learn about it. We'll make a commitment to abiding by its precepts even if we don't already agree with them, even if our society is not already constructed by them, even if we're not already predisposed to want to do them, and then we will learn about them. We might wrestle with them. We might discuss them. We might debate them. They might challenge us or make us uncomfortable. They may move us to do things we otherwise wouldn't want to do, but na'aseh, venishma. We will do them we will commit ourselves to them, and then we will learn about them. The measure, I think, of Torah learning, the measure of what should be fair game in the context of a synagogue or on the pulpit, is not whether something is political or not, because lots of the Torah is political. And it's not whether it makes me comfortable or not. Because there's plenty in the Torah that makes me uncomfortable and ought to make you uncomfortable as well. And depending on our interpretation of the Torah, of an interpretation, you might consider a comfortable interpretation or a not comfortable one. A good interpretation or a poor interpretation. So the measure is not whether or not it makes us comfortable. The measure is whether we are honest about what our tradition says and doesn't say. Whether we don't treat anything from our tradition as out of bounds or as foreign. Whether we are sincere in accepting upon our ourselves the challenge and the promise that our ancestors made in opposition to all those other nations many millennia ago, who said in response to the offer, will you take this Torah? They asked what was in it and whether I agree with it. And our ancestors said no. First, we'll commit to living by it. And then we will learn it. May we be blessed to be as open and as committed as they were to pushing ourselves sometimes beyond our boundaries of comfort and to becoming the holy people, the holy community, and the holy society that is offered to us through that Torah.